Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Book Journeys Radio. This is Dr. Angela Loria. I am the creator of the author Incubator and of the Difference Process, 10 Steps for Writing a Book That Matters. And every week on the show, we talk to an author about their experience writing their first book, the lessons that they've learned, the takeaways they have, what they might do differently next time, so that as you are working on your book, you can take some of their lessons and apply them to your project. Um, This week on the show, I am excited. This doesn't happen as often as it probably should, but I have uh, one of the authors that we have published at Difference Press, Jeanette Dowdleach, who is the author of Your Everyday Superpower. She is also known as the Sweet Relief Coach or the Brain Whisperer, and you will uh, learn why people call her the Brain Whisperer today. She is She's here with us from Australia, so you might notice an accent, um, but we're going to try and make sure you can understand what she has has to share because she's got a lot of information that can help you with your book. So, Janet, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's always fun to it's always fun to talk to you. <laughs> oh, I love talking to you too. And I actually just before I sat down I poured a cup of tea and decided I would pretend we were doing this whole interview in Australia over a cup of tea at your kitchen table. So Which would be much more like fun. <laughs> so Janet, your book, um, your first book is called Your Everyday Superpower. Tell people about the book. It's um, the the book is an exploration of a topic that's fascinated me for for the last couple of years, and that's the role of the the brain and the and what the latest brain science can teach us about our ability to create our own reality. Um, I've been a fan of deliberate creation, or whether we call it deliberate creation, law of attraction, or whatever. I've been a fan of it for a while, but I always had a slight I came from a, I came from a sort of a straight science background. My dad was a doctor, and I studied straight, you know science at high school. So I was I loved listening to things like channeled material, and I loved reading about the quantum physics. But deep down, there was this sense of I'm this kind of meat-based creature. I'm a biological creature that lives in a you know a, a, a macroscopic mechanistic world where I can't drive a cloud of energy to work. I have to get in my car. So it's sort of puzzle. And then I came across the concept of neuroplasticity. I initially through my own experience learning about pain and how it works in the brain and nervous system. But once I began to understand how it works and how our brain delivers us our experience of reality, and that our thoughts change our brain. It, it really, I, I wanted to really explore that in in depth, and uh, and the book was a perfect platform for doing that. So, I think that I think most of the people who've read it have said that by the time they get to the end of the book, uh, not only do they have a much clearer understanding of the mechanism by which things like law of attraction work, but they have an increased sense of their own. That's why I call it a superpower. And why I say it's an everyday superpower, because we all have it, but it's a bit like we're not, because we're not our brains, we're the users of our brains. So what I'm, what I'm, you know, I want to step towards is making it so that people have like the, the user's manual for their brain, if you like, because we, we don't get given one. <laughs> we have to figure this out. Yes, I've noticed that. It was something I would appreciate <laughs> having had. 
So, okay, so you say that we aren't our brains, we're the users of our brains. And then you said something about our brains create our experiences. Well, because that's starting to sound like a little, you know, woo-woo, smells and bells. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, we know that our brain delivers our experience of reality. So when I say reality, I'm talking about absolutely everything. So that's a blend of incoming information from within our own body, from the external world around us, and it's also our emotional landscape and... uh, you know, our ideas about the past, our memories, our fears or our anticipation of the future. As soon as, in order for us to be consciously, in order for us to become a consciously aware of those things in that moment, that it's the brain that delivers them to us. And and I think what really brought that home to me was understanding how pain works in that, you know, if you walk into the corner of your kitchen can't whack yourself on the hip like I'm sure most of us have done at one time or another, the pain isn't localized in our hip. It feels like it's localized in our hip, and goodness mm-hmm. knows that's where the bruise turns up. Yes, the, but the actual I'm pretty sure it's localized in my the, hip. <laughs> it, <laughs> it certainly feels that way, and that's the point of the illusion. The brain is giving you this story that there is pain in your hip for a very specific reason. It's an act of self-love. It's actually a way of protecting your body. So pain exists in order to protect the damaged region uh, from further damage, obviously. But also it exists in order for to, to get our attention on it so that we'll, we'll take some action. So what the pain researchers now know is that um, brain will deliver us the pain experience if it believes that there is risk and that there is an action to be taken. Uh, so that... And this helps explain a lot about things like chronic pain, for example, where it's like our body is trying to get our attention, either through a, head, a stress-related headache or through um, the, uh, you know, the pain of an old injury that we keep on sort of poking around at. So, uh, or if we're putting ourselves back in a, an unpleasant situation, which is where we got injured in the first place, um, one of the experiments that these pain researchers did, which I think is very cool, but it's a bit mean, is um, for people who had been injured at work, particularly um, repetitive strain type injuries, rather than acute, you know, the sudden ones, the accidents, mm-hmm. who'd, who'd had, you know, the build-up of, um, of the, to the injury over a period of time, they asked them to imagine that they were back in that workplace doing whatever it was they were doing when, the, when they, they first became aware of the, the pain. And they found that people not only re-experienced the pain, so the pain didn't just come back, but in some cases the tissue itself swelled. So it's clearly a physiological response. And one of the quotes from the, one of the pain researchers, which I really love, is um, if somebody tells you that it's in your head, meaning that it isn't real, that just means they don't understand physiology. So basically, everything we experience, we are actually getting from our brain. It's all in our head. So I say to people, right. you know, when I say to you, this is in your head, don't panic. It's all in your head. There's nothing else. <laughs> there's, no, there's no objective reality. Each one of us, like your reality is different from my reality, and it, it must be because it's, it's, the best, it's the brain's best guess at what's really going on out there. Wow. And it's also, a, yeah, I know, it's really, it kind of blows your mind a little. I think the other thing that really makes it, where it begins to make it really interesting is when we look at, so the brain has all of this amazing, <clears throat> you know, a, a cacophony of incoming information. 
how does it decide? Because it uses filters. To, if, it, if it gave us all of that information, we'd, we'd implode in a half a second. So how does the brain decide what information to give us and what are the filters that it uses? And it uses things like foresight. There's, really, there's a wonderful piece of research where um, it, it very clearly demonstrated that if the if the future was unpredictable, so this is basically just looking at dots in a random in, in a in a in a pattern that wasn't random, it was uh, repeated. Um, but if the if a dot came out of place or the things marched out of order, people's brains had to work harder to observe it. So they were watching it, and it's like their brain had begun to predict what was going to come next, and it only had to kick in and and actually work when that pattern was broken. So we use things like foresight. We use things like, um, you know, the brain will only give us evidence for what we already believe to be true. So we begin. So you can begin to see how what we believe to be true and what we focus on, we're going to get more of that in our reality. Mm. So when we and the and the new, the good news is because of neuroplasticity, which is this ability of the brain to change itself based on its thoughts. So if I think a thought. I can change my brain and the more conscious and self-aware I am, the more I can deliberately find new thoughts that I haven't thought before or new thoughts that I'm not in the habit of thinking. And as I think those new thoughts deliberately, my brain will change to match those thoughts because it doesn't know the difference between a real and an imagined reality. I can deliberately imagine a new reality and my brain will begin to match it with evidence that, that shows up. Um, and that, that kind of... Wow, so can, really I, so can I imagine a best-selling book? Can we use this to sell books? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. Why not? I, so, I always like thinking, since it's all a story, who anyway, are you? Who are you trying to help with your book? Why did you want to write this book? I think because... It goes back to what I said earlier about not having the user's manual for your brain. Mm. We all have access to this extraordinary superpower and it doesn't require us, it doesn't hurt. I'm, I, I'm, I'm very inclusive. I like to embrace all of it. I like the woo-woo and I like the science. But you don't, it's not necessary to embrace a particular tradition or a particular system or a particular anything if you, if for someone to be able to access this superpower for themselves. And this book doesn't go into a lot of the how-to because what I think, what, what I felt was really the first step, if you like, was, was basically to say to somebody who feels, who feels, might feel powerless or might be kind of wondering how does it all work and what's it all about, to sort of, I, I say to people, I sometimes want to go to, go up to strangers in the street and shake them by the lapel and kind of say, have you heard about this stuff? Do you, do you have any idea how powerful you really are? Um, and I, I think I wanted to, I, first of all, I wanted to explore it for my own benefit just to sort of go, I've got this feeling that this is how it works, but what happens if I dive into the research? Will I find that it's, you know, I, that I'm making this up? Um, and of course, you know, we, we know what happens. My brain, which was on the hunt for good information, came up with lots of evidence for what I already believed, which is that we uh -huh. have this incredible superpower. <laughs> but there is heaps of evidence for it out there, heaps and heaps. And so tell us about the writing process for you. This It sounds like it was sort of an exploration. You 
had some ideas about what you might find, but how much was research versus writing, and what was your process for writing the book? <clears throat> Great questions, and um, I think the starting point probably has to be, and, and you know, this is full disclosure here, um, because uh, I was uh, writing this book as part of uh, your program um, uh, last year. It began initially. It its first identity was a little different. It began really because I have a, a process that I use with people to help them shift um, a, a very ancient. You know, it, occasionally we have these ancient sticky stories, and it doesn't matter what what we try and do to change them. They they're hard to change. And I and I um I have a process that I use with people that helps them to because sometimes there's some brain chemistry involved, and I have this uh, kind of detox program that I use for people and I, initially I was going to write about that but it, it became apparent through discussions with you that really the, mo the more interesting topic was this more exploratory idea of how does it work like is it is it true does it is it really like this and I realized then after talking to you that the initial idea I'd had was it was or, or it was far too it was a it was narrow but b it was it required some pre-knowledge that my reader might not have uh, and it was actually going to be more interesting to, to, to open the door to this exploration. Uh, and so the process itself, um, I had already done a lot of reading uh, but as a part of the writing process, it, 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 I, so I was referring back to material I had already read but I was also researching new areas because there were, there were areas where you know, as you're sort of unfolding the story of the exploration, uh, it's a little bit like going across uh, unexplored ter territory. There are gaps in the map. So mm. there was time spent researching to fill in those gaps in my own knowledge and um, uh, and then just rereading some of the research material I'd already read. Um, well, so one of the things I hear a lot, from people is that they don't know when to stop researching and when to write. And especially yes. with a topic like this where there's studies, I see studies all the time on neuroscience. Oh, and when yes. you're writing, dear God, when you're writing a book, evidence of your book is everywhere. And the mailman all of a sudden <laughs> is bringing junk mail related to your topic. Like you could, you barely can turn around and you're like, oh my God, that's my book. Um, and so how did, you, how did you know when to stop and when it was time to start writing or was there an iterative process at all? I think it was an iterative process. It was, it was interesting to me. I use a piece of software called Scrivener which is, um, was developed for the Mac and it's developed specifically for writers. Uh, and one of the things I really like about Scrivener is it's, it's a, it's, it basically what it does is in a single piece of software it gives you somewhere to store your research notes, somewhere to store your quotes for, you know, for, the, for the material as you're researching and it also gives you somewhere to do um, planning with a sort of corkboard type of metaphor, visual metaphor uh, and for each of, so, so I was able to bounce backwards and forwards within the same piece of software so it, was, it made the process much easier instead of having to physically, like I would have my, because most of my research material is available on Kindle, most of it, so I've chosen to buy it that way because I'm lazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I also so in other words, you already had it, you had electronic versions of a lot of stuff, so you weren't having to retype over or something. 
Well, what I like about having um, the electronic version of something is it's it's sort of it's easier to do multiple bookmarks. So one of the things that I tend to do while I'm reading new material is I tend to bookmark it electronically within the material, so that that makes it quite easy to go back and you know it, it's that thing where you you think I know I've seen something about this somewhere. Now where did I see that? Having those bookmarks made that much easier to find. Um, yeah, but I like the bookmarks. The I like the search, um, the ability to search. I find that if I'm using mm-hmm. a book a lot in something I'm writing, I will, even if I have the paper version, which is what I normally read, I will buy the electronic version just for the ability to search on things. Exactly, exactly right. Yes, uh, that's a that's a, a, a that was a huge benefit, and there were times where I um, I used I, I did use that, and it's also, you know, it's um if a if a recent if because um, what I did find quite often was that an author would quote a study, uh, and I I've got a sort of an internal rule that I don't use a piece of information unless the author's been able to cite the study, and then I'll go and look at the original study. Now I've got to say I'm not a scientist, so nine times out of ten I'd be looking at the original research journal, you know, journal article, and I would understand the introduction, the abstract, and I would probably uh-huh. have a reasonable a reasonable shot at understanding the conclusion, but the methodology. Is, you know where it starts talking about the chemical makeup of proteins for neurotransmitters uh-huh. and whatever else. That's the area where I go. I trust you guys to, to do the methodology correctly. I don't need to check your work. If it got published in a, a respected peer-reviewed art, uh, journal, then I trust that the reviewers did that. <laughs> yep. So, so, so what? So, that, so that, what that, is that's the thing going into writing <laughs> no. your book? What's the thing that you wish you knew before you wrote your book? Uh, I, I wish I'd been clearer about my own process. I, um, because the framework within which we were doing this project um, meant that I was going to be writing, you know, I had an agreed deliverable at the end of each week over a five-week period. Um, that ended up stretching out because I had some unexpected family dramas um, with my mum, and uh, which and you know it's fa- thank thank you for, and you know thank God for the fact that there was flexibility built in. But what I discovered was uh, that I wish I'd known before. If I have a week in which to write something, I'm going to probably start it on day five. It doesn't matter how uh, how how carefully I make up my mind to write it on day two and give myself plenty of time to edit, it seems that there is something in my system that doesn't let me sit down to the blank page until about day five. It's almost as though I need that pressure of a deadline to 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 get the the words to blurt out onto the page. So I will I did all so I so what I tend to do, I now know, I have lots of, I do have a lot of the research already there so that I have an idea of what I'm talking about from the beginning because I I don't want to go in there completely not knowing what each section is going to be about. I need to know enough to have a structure to be able to say this is what I'll talk about here, this is what I'll talk about here, etc. But the actual writing of it, uh, it turns out that that's, how, that's my process, that's how I do things. And it the first time around, it really bothered me. I'd done this before writing short stories where you know, I'd sort of gone through agonies of feeling terribly guilty because I hadn't sat down to finish it yet or I hadn't started it yet. 
And uh, and now that I understand that, it's much easier for me to go, you know what, it's due on Saturday, it's now Thursday, this is when I start writing. And and the writing that I do, sort of by doing it that way, it comes, it turns out better, is all I can say. It, it I don't know how this works or why it works, but... You know, I, I remember once when I, <laughs> I should know, I should have known this. When I was at university, uh, a good friend of mine had a, an essay due the next day. So we were sitting on his bed in his dormitory room um, at two o'clock in the morning, and I dictated the essay as he hand wrote it. This was back in the days when essays were turned in written by hand before he had to type them out. And he um, he he took dictation, and I gave him the essay because I was an idiot and I was in love, um, and he got the best, he got his highest mark ever for that essay. So I'm, I clearly do my best work <laughs> when it's last minute, which is wow. kind of annoying, but now that I know it, I can work within it. <laughs> so turn that into a tip for people that are working on a book and they're frustrated that they have started but haven't finished. Maybe they've started multiple books but haven't finished. Uh, how, would you, how would you give them advice about how to get their book done? I, I would say... I would say two things. First of all, have someone to whom you're accountable. Um, that makes a huge difference. And one of the things that got me over that hump of, you know, oh my God, it's, it's Thursday and I haven't done it yet. One of the things that got me over that hump was knowing that I had made a commitment to someone else, to you, that I would deliver by a certain date. And uh, for me, that was a really strong motivator. So if there is a way that you can find that kind of uh, someone who will someone to whom you feel responsible for having said you'll do it. So, you know, if it's your, yes, if your BFF and she doesn't really care, then it probably won't work. But if there's somebody to whom you've said, look, I, I am I'm going to finish this book and I'm going to do it by such and such a date, make that deal and get them to hold you accountable. If, sometimes externalizing that I found really helpful and sometimes I think we, we benefit from that sense of... Uh, being required to step up. Uh, and the other thing is, I think it's really, um, uh, I know that, that for me, figuring out that this is my process, it meant that I could stop beating myself up for the fact that this is how I work. And so the next time I came to write a book, the the knowing that this is the process, it felt much easier to sit down at the computer on the Thursday or whatever and and not feel guilty. I wasn't having to battle the guilt and the fear that I wouldn't get it done. You know, the, oh my God, I've left it so late, what if I can't do it? I didn't have to battle those things because by now I'd figured out this is actually part of how I work and it's okay. So I think getting a bit of self-knowledge about your own um, and and res and lifting, any way, lifting away any sense of judgment. It's like, if this is how you roll, if this is the thing that you need in order to get something finished, if you need that external motivation, that's okay. You know, don't turn it into a reason to be so stressed and guilty and fearful of of, of it that you that you don't do it. And I, you know, the other message, of course, is it, it, be willing to have a crappy first draft. I, I mm. my first drafts are not pretty. <laughs> That's another yeah, advantage of no, really pieces around. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's tricky when you're showing someone your work. I think we a lot of times tend to want to 
keep our crappy first draft to ourselves, but understanding mm-hmm. uh, how to have a safe space to share that. So you don't necessarily want to share your crappy first draft with, I don't know, let's say your mother. Um, but if there is somebody <laughs> who you can really trust to give you the kind of feedback that's going to keep you moving forward. Sometimes people say the littlest thing, and it can slow down your progress for days or weeks or sometimes completely because it just shuts off your little lizard that makes it harder to write. So you have to be careful about who you share it with, but you have to be careful about not sharing it at all. I can relate a story that was a really good example of that. I, some um, A couple of years ago, I was invited to submit a short story to an anthology with an editor I'd never met and um, didn't know at all. <clears throat> and when I sent my manuscript through, my first draft through, it wasn't perfect, I, I admit. There were things that needed uh, addressing. Um, and... Um, her response, in, in amongst her response, or in fact the covering email that she sent back, she said that she thought my character, I, do you know how sometimes negative words get burned into your memory? She mm-hmm. said that she thought that, mm-hmm, she said that she thought that the actions my character took uh, were psychotic. And, <laughs> and I was like, what this is my this is my narrator character that we have to have empathy for her and you hate her that much and i read all of her comments throughout and she clearly hadn't she clearly hadn't understood the story which meant i hadn't written it well enough for her to understand you know i'm not blaming her but the way she chose to express you know the fact that she'd expressed it like that might put up my guard and thank God I had another editor friend who'd who'd edited my stories for another publication uh, and I, I, I actually rang her in tears and said, I, I have no idea what to do next. I am so angry and I'm so hurt and I feel like pulling my story from this anthology and I don't want to do that because I think it's a good story and I think it's a good uh, anthology. And uh, bless her heart, she, she said, email it through to me with all the comments and I'll, I'll read it through. And she basically talked me back into sanity again and gave me some really good ideas. And she was, she said, you know, you haven't made it clear, you haven't explained it well, but I see what you're getting at because I know how you write and I know your, you know, how you think. So uh, I think it would be good if you did X, Y, and Z. So between the two of us, um, uh, I ended up taking a different path again uh, in terms of the story. But she was able to, so having that safe space with her, with Jody, and being able to say, no, this, is, this story has value, it just hasn't been particularly well told yet, right. was really helpful. Right. Yeah. Everybody needs so that's someone in their, so in their writing circle who can help them do that in their world. So why is yeah. it worth it? Why was all the you know mm-hmm. time and effort and the blood, sweat, and tears, what has come out of being an author that makes it worth it to you? Well, such a good question. Um, first of all, the fact that I now feel totally comfortable calling myself an author, and I can't explain why that's been a desire for many, many years, except to say <clears throat> when, I was a, when I was a kid, I can remember uh, if, my, if I'd been sent to my room in trouble for something that I thought was deeply unfair, I had a, an ambition to write a book <clears throat> from, you know, basically explaining parenting to the parents. <laughs> 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 I, I, nice. thought, I, wanted, 
I want to be. I never did it, so and I've forgotten now what it, what the child's perspective is. So it's like, oh, I missed that opportunity. But um, I think it's twofold. It's first of all, it's just being able to say, I did it. I'm an author. But it's also being able to look at the reaction of people who have reviewed the book and and feel really satisfied. One, there's one person who reviewed it on Amazon. As somebody I don't know, who um, and bless them for putting this review there because it just I woke up to it and I read it and it brought tears to my eyes. I was so grateful. Basically, she said that after reading this, she she's had uh, dealt, dealt been dealing with chronic pain for many years, and after reading my book, as a result of reading my book, and she said that as a result of reading this book, she sought out a um, pain psychologist who specialises in helping people shift retrain their brain to um, lessen pain and that the work has already made a difference to her life and I was like yeah given that this is not a how-to book this is a exploration the fact that somebody got something such a concrete benefit from reading this book it just lit me up I mean it's one thing to have people say oh I really understand my own brain a bit better and I, I feel like I have power that's fabulous but this is kind of like another level of satisfaction. So, <clears throat> absolutely. It, and it reminded me of that thing of for anybody who's got a book in them, you cannot know what impact that's going to have on other people, on the world, until you bring it out. So you have to bring it out. Mm-hmm. You have a responsibility yes. to the planet. You cannot make a difference if your manuscript is sitting on your hard drive. That is a sentence I say often. Uh, Janet Dalglish is the author of of Your Everyday Superpower, Your Everyday Superpower. You can go to youreverydaysuperpower.com or sweetreliefcoaching.com to learn more. Janet, thank you so much for being with us today. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And we will be back next week on Book Journeys Radio where we are changing the world one book at a time. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.